You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, just a warning, everybody. This episode is a touch explicit, so if you're sitting in the car with the kids, there is some adult language you might want to pause it. Now enjoy the show. This is Amin Lakani. This is Paul Ollinger. This is Diana Merriam, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. So Sarah said to St. Peter, what, you're sending me back to Earth? And I expected uproarious laughter after that line. In reality, I got a little smattering of giggles. I was on the stage at the Economy Conference. I was the last speaker, and I was giving a talk that was three separate vignettes. And you see, the first one was supposed to be the funny one. Now... If I hadn't practiced the talk so much, I probably would have lost my cool. But instead, I went to the second and third vignettes, which sat much more comfortable with me because they were about vulnerability and the profound. And by the end of the speech, I really felt like it turned out well. Everyone was happy. I got some applause. But I realized that when it comes to being on stage, I feel like I have a great understanding of vulnerability, profundity even wit and sarcasm, but comedy, man, it's hard to make people laugh. And speaking about laughing, you know what's not funny? What's not funny is when you don't know what to do with your finances. I had no idea what to do with my money until I discovered the Financial Independence Retire Early movement. Even though I wasn't interested in retiring early at the time, Learning about financial independence changed my life. But you know what? I had to go to a bunch of different websites, listen to a bunch of different podcasts. It got a little confusing. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Phiology.com. That's F-I-O-L-O-G-Y.com. David Boyer made this site to be your guide to financial independence. Here you can download the free Phiology workbook. You can learn about Camp Phi. And if you sign up for their newsletter, you can get the 52 financial independence lessons that will come to your inbox once a week. Check them out, phiology.com. Become part of the financial independence community. You won't regret it. Paul Ollinger is a nationally touring stand-up comedian, author, and host of the Crazy Money Podcast. Paul, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on again. Okay, quick, say something funny. 
Oh, no, don't. I, I should have something prepared for that, but I don't. I'm sorry. Isn't that like the worst question ever? I knew it was. And that's why, I, of course, had to say it. But that automatically kills anything funny you could possibly say. There's I, I you know what? You, you've just given me the 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 task to go write a snappy retort to that command. We'll be waiting for it. You know, there's the, there'll, there'll be some time too. by the end of the podcast. So yeah, keep okay. on thinking about it. Diana Miriam is the host of the Optimal Finance Daily Podcast, the founder and chief economist of the Economy Conference. Diana, tell us a little bit about your experience with stand-up. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm a comedian. I think it's hilarious that you invited me to this podcast with real comedians. I am someone that has done a shit ton of open mics. And so that is my experience. And Amin Lakani is the dating coach on wheels. He creates comedy to share his disabled life and lessons he's learned. I mean, you're one of the few people that I say when you do stand-up, you actually do it from a chair. There are not a lot of people doing comedy in wheelchairs, are there? Surprising there is there are. There's really? like a whole when I was when I was practicing out in Seattle, we had a whole show called The Disabled List of just comedians with disabilities. That was awesome. It's an interesting thought. Is comedy different, do you think, coming from a disability standpoint? Do those shows look different than general comedic performances? I mean, the people look different, for sure, because we're, we're all a bunch of weirdos. But I mean, you've, we fit in pretty well with comedians who are a lot of weirdos. Uh, I think people think that a lot of people with disabilities don't do comedy because a lot of people associated disability with sadness. And we don't have as much representation on the bigger stages like Netflix or like HBO or whatever yet. But I think we'll get there eventually. Yeah, Diana, it kind of makes sense, right? Because comedy in general is self-effacing. We like to make fun of what's different about us. I've heard one of your stand-ups and you make a little fun of yourself. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's just kind of part of my nature. But I think it's interesting in stand-up how you can take something that maybe is uncomfortable and kind of switch it around. So like, for example, I don't know if I'm doing it now, but I have a tendency to flush. So like when I'm really excited, my neck will just get beat red. And so I turn that into a joke. You know, I would tell people on stage, like, you know, I'm not the kind of person that wears their emotion or wears their heart on their sleeve, but I wear my emotions on my skin. So when I'm happy, I'm red. When I'm angry, I'm red. I hope we can all agree at this moment that I am incredibly aroused. It was a great joke, right? People always laughed at it, but it took a lot of the pressure off of like something that I'm actually self-conscious about. Paul, when I talked in the intro about this talk I gave for the Economy Conference, the first vignette didn't go the way I thought it was because it wasn't nearly as funny as I thought it would be. Tell me about your worst kind of bombing on stage. What happened? Uh, well, I, I think bombing is underrated. You know, I, I think I don't bomb enough. And what I see most comedians doing is, is, is not bombing and risking not growing because they're not trying new material. And so while it really sucks for a joke that you care about to bomb or that you're putting a lot of hope in to fall very flat, the bigger risk is to not try it 
and to not go there and to use the stuff that you know works over and over and over. And it's great because, you know, you, you get laughs and you come off the stage and you feel like, oh, that was fun. The crowd likes you. And you, then you go back into the green room and you're looking at the other comics. You're just like, come on, man, you got to push it. You got to go. You got to try new stuff. You got to grow. And so one of the things that I think everybody should get more comfortable with is, is putting yourself out there. And it's not the, it's not that, it's not that the joke fall fell flat. It's how you react to it. Because even if you bomb, but you maintain control, you maintain your sense of confidence on stage, the audience will still respect you. If you, if it bombs and you let that get to you, you are dead. Paul, do you feel like that's easier in open mics? No, because like, especially in person, like I find it hard to do things in this digital age where like everything could be recorded and there could be consequences. I miss, I mean, it wasn't that much long ago, like a little over a year ago, the in-person open mics where you just go, it's a bunch of mostly comedians. You can try a bunch of stuff. And if you fall flat, like they're just going to laugh at you because they know what it's like. I, you know, I don't feel for me personally, I don't feel like other comics are as accurate a gauge as uh, uh, of the quality of the material. Now, I mean, yes, comedians are definitely a tougher audience because they know the tricks, they've heard your mm. stuff and they know when you're cheating. Mm. But if you really want to, if you really want an assessment of whether or not your material is, is relevant to, to broader audiences, the sensibilities of the common person or the general population isn't reflected mm -hmm. in the back of the room at, you know, the bar at one o'clock on a Tuesday, but, but the open mics are a great forcing function and, and a relatively safe place. Yeah. To, to, to go out there and just be like, I'm going to, I'm, I, you want to say the weirdest thing that's ever on your mind. <laughs> that's the place to do it. Yeah. That's I, why I love it. I couldn't agree more, though, in that it's not necessarily representative of what's funny, because I found with all the open mics that I went to, it's all other comedians. And I found that they were like just working on what they were going to say versus paying attention what I was going to say. So like something that could have landed with a real audience, if I would have like dismissed it because I didn't get a laugh in that crowd, it's it's almost like you have to develop a, a level of discernment on what's actually funny, even if you know, you're not getting that response at an open mic of other comedians. I actually got really lucky in that my first time on stage, I thought I was going to an open mic. And when I got to this bar, it was like in South Slope in Brooklyn, Freddy's, if anyone here is listening in Brooklyn, you know, Freddy's in South Slope. So I knew this bar, I was comfortable at this bar. And so I saw on their calendar that they had this open mic. And I really wanted to try. And I like worked on what I was going to say. It was like, you got five minutes. And so I get there an hour early and, you know, I'm telling the bartender I'm here for the open mic. Like, where do I sign up? And she was like, oh, I'm so sorry. The website was wrong. It's actually a booked show. <laughs> but the guy who's organizing it is sitting right over there. You should just ask him if he'll let you on stage. So I totally schmoozed that guy. And he let me in the middle of a booked show because it was like Labor Day weekend and a bunch of people canceled. But the, I got up on stage the first time and I got so much laughter because they were so warmed up. I wasn't good at all. I watched that video and I'm just like, man, that was awful. But because it was a real audience and they were warmed up, they laughed a lot. Now, if I would have went to an actual open mic for my first time, I don't know that I would have ever done it again because 
I don't, uh, most of my open mics, I didn't experience that level of laughter. This is, I guess this is my little plug for better open mics. I've been to those open mics that are awful and I hated them. So I just created my own because I was like, this sucks. I want a community of people that want to make me better and I want to make them better. And we had a really awesome little group like that. And I'm not even in Seattle. Actually, many of us are not in Seattle anymore, but we still meet up regularly. Currently, I send them a joke a day. I'm like, with, I'm just going to record a joke every day under a minute and send it to you. If you guys want to do it, you can. Some of them do, some of them don't. But And they give me little like tips or thoughts on what can make it better. So I think there is the potential for better open mics, but I don't know why the community ends up that way where everyone's just doing their own thing. Like you're, most of the people are not going to become famous. So I'm like, why am I going to, why am I going to, why don't I be happy in the process of getting to where I'm going as opposed to just being miserable working on my own stuff? Paul, I mean, brings up a interesting question when he says, well, most people aren't going to become famous. Why do this? Why stand up in front of a group of people and pretty much I talk about vulnerability because I talk about things that hurt me. That's one thing. Trying to make people laugh is a scary predicament when you're standing up there alone on a stage. Why do it? Well, it's an excellent, excellent point. And I've been thinking a lot about this recently. You know, there's Malcolm Gladwell made famous the 10,000 hour rule, right? That you have to put 10,000 hours of work into any craft before you become proficient in it. And here's the thing that Malcolm Gladwell doesn't tell you, or, or he doesn't really talk about. You can put in 10,000 hours and still suck, or you can put in 10,000 hours and be pretty good and the world won't give a crap, right? So you better, before any of us, I don't want to say you better, that sounds like I'm lecturing, anyone who is considering dedicating him or herself to the acquisition of skill in a craft, regardless of what it is, whether it's baking or photography or fill in the blank, a comedy, you know, you should be doing it for the sole purpose of the joy of doing that thing. Because, you know, while you will get better, while you will improve and you might become the best you can be, at the end of those 10,000 hours, there's no guarantee that, that you're going to be, quote, successful in a commercial or uh, public way. So it, it, doing the thing for the essence of itself is its own reward. Diana, let's bounce off what Paul just said. When you were, or when I was introducing you, you said, well, I don't know if I'm a comedian. I've just done a shit ton of open mics. When would you consider yourself a comedian? Uh, even in light of this whole 10,000 hour idea too, like if you've done tons and tons, I mean, your first gig was not even an open mic. When would it qualify to you? And you could say, okay, now I feel like I'm a comedian. When that imposter syndrome wears off, right? Yeah, maybe. I, I kind of think of it as like, if you get book shows, if you're getting paid to do comedy or you're getting book shows and people are, you know, taking you more seriously in that light. I mean, for me, I think that I used comedy to get over my fear of public speaking, honestly. 
I also, I have always had in my head that I'm interested in performance in some way. So like I joined school of rock and I did, you know, I sang because I love to sing. I, it led me really to like even discovering like with the economy conference, I love being on stage. I just wasn't finding my right medium. So I kind of look at my history and stand up as like me trying to find my right medium of performance. And it kind of led me to economy and also with the podcast Optimal Finance Daily, it's a lot of like voice acting. And I think that appeals to me a lot more than than the comedy con- comedy ultimately did. I mean, Diana just said like, you know, getting booked regularly for gigs, getting paid to do your act yeah. qualifies you as a comedian. When I look at your website, one of the ways you define yourself as a comedian Yet it seems to me you have a much different purpose, which is to shed light on your disability and to have kind of some of those deeper conversations. What does it mean to you? Why did you decide to call yourself a comedian on the website? I said as a cop out because I was doing dating advice. And then I was like, God, like, I don't want people to come to me. And this is my imposter syndrome. It's like, I don't want people to come to me, think they I have all the answers. And then walk away not getting some results so i'm just gonna be a comedian like basically it's my way of saying this is all for entertainment value only like take with take from it what you will because i only wanted to do it if it was still fun for me and i have gotten paid on like a couple shows for comedy but yeah that wasn't what defined being a comedian for me i think more more on that was when i came to that definition was i Every time I share a message or every time I try to talk about my disability, I always want it to have some sort of comedic effect because I think that makes the message stick better because it's more emotional. You're in a better state to receive it. And it's just fun. Like I, you asked Paul, like, why do comedy? I just, I always, I enjoy telling my jokes way more than audiences enjoy hearing them. Because I just think it's hilarious that I get, I get to go on stage and say some of the things I stay or on in an open mic. And that in and of itself tickles me beyond anything, any reaction from the audience. Paul, let's talk about the money a little bit. You people who oh, are- there's tons of money <laughs> ton, in tons. There's so much money in comedy. <laughs> it's just Everybody coming out of your pocket and falling out of the ground. Everybody should quit their job in technology and become a comedian. That's what, there's not enough of us. Paul, Paul isn't that exactly what you did? You quit oh, your yeah, corporate oh, job I and became a comedian for that. the money, yeah, right? I threw my, my, my one percentile job in the toilet so I could get attention <laughs> from strangers. That's exactly what I did. How's it working? Um, well, it depends what metrics you're using, right? And it comes back to, it comes back to, you know, when I say that highly enlightened thing about the reward being only the, the permission to do that thing itself, that's, that's me reflecting the experience of getting the shit kicked out of me by comedy for eight years. And, you know, I think you, you, you can say you're a comedian when you keep showing up and doing the work for no other reason other than your dedication to it. And I, I, you know, 20 years ago when I was taking my first comedy lesson, I had a career coach slash therapist. And I was asking her that exact question. At what point do I get to call myself a comedian? And I don't remember the exact answer, but I think it's something along the lines of like, 
you'll know when you're showing up and you're doing it, even though it's brutally hard. When I'm, when I restarted in Atlanta six years ago, because I did comedy full, full time in LA for two years and then went to work at Facebook and then moved back to Atlanta and then restarted comedy a few years later, I had to, when I, when I first showed up, the comedians in town kind of looked at me kind of sideways, like, all right, who is this guy? This guy used to work in business. He was at Facebook. I don't trust him. And then it was only after I kept showing up like weekend, week out doing as many shows as I could that they sort of were, I, I noticed this sort of like, oh, I guess he's not going away. We can trust him kind of thing. Because there's a lot of people that come into comedy, say, I'm going to do this thing. And then they fizzle out and disappear because it's hard. And there's, there's no rewards outside of just getting out there and having fun. He's talking about me. <laughs> no, I, I let I, it fizzle out. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, Diana, it's, it's, there's so, there, you know, there's whatever, however many comedy classes in Atlanta at any given time. Right. So every year there's, I don't know, let's say there's a hundred people in Atlanta and every city in the country who graduate from a comedy class. Now, of those people, a certain percentage are going to stay in it for more than five years. And that's probably five or 10% at most. But there's probably 50% are going to keep going out to the open mics for us for an extended period of time. And maybe, you know, maybe in two or three years, you'll decide you do want to do comedy and you're going to start going out and you'll do 25, 50, 100 shows a year. But but yeah, it's it's something that a lot of people are interested in. It's as popular today as it's ever been because of social media and whatever. And there's a lot of people that dip their toe in it. And some have the strength to walk away and others of us get trapped. Diana, it's kind of funny because as we're talking about this, I feel like we're talking about like this big achievement, like writing a nationally popular book or becoming CEO of a big company. We're talking in terms that are nothing near laughable, but we're talking about comedy. It's a serious business. Yeah. I mean, I think it's more about like, what is that Seinfeld joke where he talks, is it the Seinfeld where he talks about how like the only thing people fear more than death is public speaking. Right. And so I think that that's what makes it so challenging and why people think like, wow, you have balls to get up in front of other people and try to make them laugh because it just public speaking in general is really hard. And then to add that like layer on top of it, that you're also expected to like, delight and entertain and make everyone laugh. I mean, the payoff is, you know, when you actually make people laugh, I mean, there's no better feeling. It's like a, it's like a drug, you know? And I think that's what keeps you coming back is for that high. But yeah, it's, it's definitely a challenging thing. I think for me, you know, I just remember like sitting there waiting for my turn at these open mics and my heart would be like pounding out of my chest and I'm so nervous and I think, feel like I'm going to throw up, you know, it's almost like doing it so many times desensitize, desensitizes you to that fear. And you realize that like, this isn't the end of the world and the stakes are really freaking low, <laughs> you know? So like, if I can do that, what else can I challenge myself to do? I think that's really what I got out of it. I mean, Diane talks about the high when you really get the laugh. And then she talks about the fear and anxiety. Is that the biggest low? Tell me about some of the lows you felt up on stage. Yeah, I think the biggest lows I have are when I'm not with friends, like as, as Dan was talking about these different experiences, I was 
recollecting for myself, like what makes it good. Like when I've had shows where there's just insane laughter. And I guess I, I go back to that point of, I don't get so much out of that. I get more out of knowing my friends are in the audience and observing that I'm saying this shit on stage and that we're going to laugh about it later and they're going to give me crap for it later. That to me is, is such a joy. So when I think about the times where I've had it, had the lows is uh, when the room's just been silent and no one's laughing, but like, I know it's going to be funny, but I also know it's going to be really painful for a couple of minutes until, until I finish my set. And there's no one there immediately. Like at one time I had, uh, I was at this show. There's no, nobody I knew there. Uh, I just went because I was like, I want to go to more open mics. And then I just chatted up with this one guy before the, before I went up and he was, it was like a mixed open mic and he was doing some kind of accordion music. And uh, so like totally random show open mic. And we just chatted a little bit before the show. And as soon as I left the stage, it was, everyone was just speechless because it was, my humor is very, very dark and it just was not suitable for that audience. This guy was just like, Hey, I thought your stuff was hilarious. And like, instantly I was like, that was so worth it. Cause like if he and I, if I connected with one person who saw me, cause that was who I really am and thought that was, Hey, that's kind of cool. Or that's kind of funny. That made it worth it to me. Paul, do you do a mid-show pivot? I mean, if you're up there and you're doing your shtick and it's not landing, do you pivot in the middle of your show? Or once you're like, this is what I'm going with and we're taking it down with the ship if we have to. I, I think you try to do that before you go on stage. You know, you're looking at the audience and you're saying, I think I know a little bit about these people or I'm, I'm going to make some assumptions about them. And their assumptions are obviously not always correct. But, you know, depending upon where you are in the lineup, you know, you can get a feel for what they're laughing at. If they're laughing, if there's a holes in the crowd, if there's disruptors in the crowd, if there's certain things that you would want to avoid or go after. Yeah. So there's some improvisation, there's some adaptation. I mean, if it, in, in each type of show is different, if it's a showcase show, you can see several people before you sometimes, if it's a headliner show and you're the feature, which is generally what I've been doing recently is, you know, the host does this thing, then you're up there for half an hour and you got to figure it out. You, you know, you asked about the lows of this thing. I'll, I'll, I'll volunteer some thoughts. The lowest, the worst parts of being a comedian are the 23 and a half hours after you bomb, right? <laughs> so hopefully if you bomb, you bomb on a Friday so that you have Saturday to come back and, and, and prove to yourself and whoever else is watching, which is generally nobody, by the way, Nobody else really gives a shit how you do. They only care how they, how they do on a show. But the 23 and a half hours, you have to sit there and think to yourself, what the fuck am I doing with my life? I just bombed out there and I, I'm, I'm doing this thing at such a high opportunity cost. I must be insane. And I don't think that ever stops. I, I think that I think every comedian at every level feels that on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on some level. And there's, there's another part of pain, which oddly, th this tells you a little bit about the comedian mindset. So there's the biggest pain for me in comedy is the angst I put myself through when I look at other comedians who are getting gigs that I think I'm qualified for. They're getting selected for the big festival. 
why didn't I get Montreal? Why doesn't this booker at this club and, you know, fill in the blank of the city like me? I'm intelligent. I'm smart. I have something that nobody else has to offer. Why isn't the world noticing? It is defeatist. It is catastrophizing. And every comedian does it. And what's weird is that I really noticed how much I was doing it after the pandemic started and everything got shut down. And I was like, well, nobody's working. I don't have to feel bad about anything. <laughs> that's how weak, that's how weak minded you can be and beat yourself up about stuff that's talk about shit that doesn't matter, Diana. That's the shit that doesn't matter. And, 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 and yet it drives me bananas and it's probably the worst part of being a comedian. Comparison is the thief of joy, right? Absolutely. Teddy Roosevelt nailed it. Diana, how much of comedy is about insecurity? I mean, how much of a role does that play and drive us to do these crazy things? I mean, I do think it played a role for me. I think I was definitely attention seeking for a long time. You know, you're looking for external validation in some ways. I don't think every comedian is as insecure as I probably am, but I, I do think that's a little part of it. And I think that's probably a big reason why I decided to stop because, I mean, the last time I was on stage, I think was 2017. And I, I just was spending so much time in these rooms that just like, it's like filled with desperation. I felt like, you know, like just the open mics with these people that like were clearly depressed and not happy with their lives. And I just came to a realization that the most important part of my happiness is surrounding myself with people who inspire me. And I just wasn't getting that in those open mics. But I've gotten that in other ways that still allow me that element of performance. I don't think that's true for everyone. Maybe just in Cincinnati, it's it's a <laughs> it's a sad group. But but yeah, that was just my experience. Without insecurity, there is no comedy. That's it's a pretty profound statement. Without insecurity, there is no comedy. What do you think? I mean, yeah, same with me. Like one of the reasons I so I started doing public speaking. And then pivoted to comedy because public speaking as someone with a disability is like playing like t-ball instead of baseball like there's no challenge like you go up and they're they're just like oh you're so inspirational i'm like like, (laughs) fuck this right and i i just wanted to tell jokes and tell make people laugh because that's hard that's a level playing field i you, you go up there someone with a disability and they're still like make me laugh motherfucker right so it's it's cool. I like it. But yeah, that's where that insecurity started where I was like, I got to do something that shows, I mean, Dr. and I talked about this before. I got to do something to show, kind of distinguish myself from the other dudes. I'm like, all right, well, I can't like lift a girl up, but I can go on stage and say the weirdest things and be okay with it. So maybe that'll be something. You think it's hard being handicapped? Try being a tall white man with two beautiful legs. <laughs> yeah, I'd try being a. <laughs> you made him speechless. That was pretty dark. That was pretty dark. Come on, I mean, try bring being a white, white man who uses the word handicapped. That's pretty disabled. Did I say, dis- did I say handicapped? Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. You think it's hard being dis- disabled? No, no, I just think I think you made yourself yourself like you screwed yourself over pretty <laughs> fantastically. So. 
Yeah, I forgot my I forgot my my handbook today. Yeah. I apologize. I mean, see, okay, there I just bombed. That's an example of bombing, Doc G. I said make me trying laugh. I didn't funny. say bomb for me. Trying to, I was trying to think of the most edgy thing I could say without being totally offensive. Edgy, yeah, and I and I, I achieved half my goal. Here, yeah. let me let me see if I can jump in for you. So, I mean, I'm picturing people going to the public speaking training camp and the guy getting up on stage and saying. If you got a disability, that's mint. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Because, <laughs> like, I mean, that's what we've, that's what we're shown, right? Like, people with disabilities are either like sad and this unfortunate, or they're inspirational. And I'm like, I want to be neither of those. So let me be the twisted asshole that you're like, kind of wondering, like, man, I'm kind of glad he's disabled because if he wasn't, I don't know what the fuck he'd be doing, right? So. <laughs> In the first half of the show, Paul, Diana, and Amin talk about why ever go into comedy. After the break, we delve into where they get their inspiration for their material. But first... Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date, First-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, service key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash earn. That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash earn and get started. Today, I'm introducing you to a better way to money. We've all heard of credit unions, but do you know why credit unions are the best financial partner for you? Unlike other financial institutions, credit union members are owners, so profits are reinvested in you. This means better rates, better services, low or no fees, and those dreams you're chasing, well, they can become a reality a lot faster. The best part? There's a credit union for everyone and membership lasts a lifetime. Federally insured, digitally connected, join the millions of Americans already getting more from their money. Visit yourmoneyfurther.com today to find a credit union for you. Again, that's yourmoneyfurther.com. So, Paul, tell me about inspiration here. Where where does the well of of laughs come from? Like, where do you get your material? I try to make myself the butt of every joke. Oh, really, Paul? I well, <laughs> he's, he's not going to leave you alone just, for the rest of the podcast. I was just expressing, <laughs> I was just expressing my insecurity about being, you know, <laughs> about being uh, me. No, I mean, look, I think I, I'm I'm not an insult comic. I'm sorry. I mean, I didn't mean to to to, to offend you, but I I really do. Like, so you know, I don't ever want to be the comedian who's like, oh, my wife, she doesn't whatever. You know, like it's I I tell a joke about the way she loads the dishwasher which is horrific by the way, but it's really about my inability to control the chaos around me in the world. My, my complete f- feeling of powerlessness about 
about my, my complete powerlessness to do anything about the things that are important in the world. And so I overemphasize the importance of the stupid little shit in life. And I make a big deal about stuff that doesn't matter. You know, I'd like, basically I'm, you know, I talk about like, she's just cleaning dishes and I'm working off original sin, you know, like I feel, I feel complete. I, I still walk around with the guilt I had as a, you know, seventh grade Catholic boy. And you know what I'm saying? And, you know, like I carry that with me and I'm trying to find ways to express these weird contradictions I feel in myself. You know, I, on some level, the success I've worked so hard to attain in the corporate life is just this, this weird salve on my, on my childhood insecurities that I thought if I worked really, really hard and achieved some level of success, I'd feel complete and whole. And now I got a kid who goes over to his really rich friend's house and comes home and says, when, when are we going to hire a chef? And I'm like, really, really a chef. That's that's don't compare your childhood to your friend's childhood. Compare your childhood to my childhood and th that kind of stuff. Right. So Diana, what I'm finding here is that Amin and Paul are dark. And if I remember correctly, when you sent me a video of you doing uh, stand-up, you said, be careful, it's a little raunchy. Oh, yeah. Talk about sexuality and stand-up comedy. As yeah. a woman, it gives you the opportunity to stand up and say things that normally in polite society we don't say. Yeah. Well, I think it's like where you get your material from. You know, I got my material from being promiscuous in my twenties. And if you think about like, if comedy Damn it, I missed, I missed that. <laughs> Shit. If you think about comedy is about attention seeking, I mean, what's more attention seeking than being overly promiscuous, you know, you combine those two. And that was like me on stage. Um, I guess, I don't know. I just, I thought that that's what was funny. And maybe that's also another reason why, like, I'm just kind of past that phase in my life. So, you know, I've been in a committed relationship for a long time now. Like I do sometimes when I think about getting on stage again, I think about how I can translate my jokes. So like breakfast blowjob sandwich, by the way, which is my best joke. Like now I talk about giving that to my boyfriend rather than just some stranger I met on the subway, you know, <laughs> so like there is a way to, to translate it. But but yeah, it's interesting. Like I think most comics are probably pulling their material from their real life experience. Yeah, Paul, Paul's currently speechless after the breakfast blowjob sandwich. So I'll have to ask. A um, question. I've got a fully I've got I've got a fully charged Metro card. If anybody <laughs> over here looking for for bus fare. So, I mean, do you get tired of speaking about disability? I mean, is there a time when you're like, I just want to do a set and be here in my wheelchair and not address it at all and just say something totally hilarious? Yeah, all the time. I mean, a lot of. My, uh, the friends I made through comedy would sometimes like push me more, like you need to talk about your disability more. And I'm like, like, like wh why? Right. Like, I don't want to, I just want to talk about the weird sexual things I think about. Right. <laughs> like my, my breakfast blowjobs, but yeah. So I think there's a lot of times where I go up and I don't address it. And then I started to play with that a little bit too. Like of when I would address it and whether it was later in the set or earlier in the set and to see if that would build up a little bit more tension. I guess that I kind of have a question for you guys about that. Like I also noticed there are certain jokes that I would get tired of. And then there are other jokes that I will never tire of. I, and I, and I've noticed this my whole life. So for example, 
when I was in college, I worked at like a fine dining restaurant where, where you have to like change the silverware every course, right? Maybe this is my first stand-up gig. <laughs> and, uh, and every time I would have to give someone new silverware, I would put it down and I'd say complimentary silverware every single time, never got old. It killed, killed every time. So, so that's a joke that like never gets old, but there are other jokes that are just like, God, I don't want to say this again, even though I know it works. Like, do you guys feel like you have jokes like that, that you have a tough relationship with? Paul, it's, it's a good question. Like, do you recycle the same stuff over and over again? Or is there absolutely by, I mean, I don't have a lot of principles on that level. <laughs> you know, if it works, it works. What, what really happens is what, what's weird is that if you do it long enough, you run into situations where either the joke expires because of a change in political situations in our country or in the world. Or, you know, I tell, I told jokes about my kids when they were four and five years old. Now they're 10 and 11 they're, you know, and, and they don't, those jokes don't make sense anymore. It do, they don't work in the past tense. They work only in the current tense. And I've got jokes now with my kids that are working and I'm like, shit, this joke is only going to be around for another year. I had this whole thing about my dad. He died six months ago. Right. So I'm like, well, thanks, dad. There goes 10 minutes, you know, like really considerate of you. I hope my in-laws stay healthy. You know, that's all I can. That's all I'm really hoping for right now. Yeah, I have some. I, I just got tired of working them over and over because it was like week in, week out. So I just wanted to not share them with the same open mic audience. But my probably best jokes are around cousin fucking and my friend like that's just like my thing it's brilliant that, that I, really really those, that. I only do cousin fucking jokes during the holidays that's yeah. really the only part <laughs> time of year that that's appropriate right so i just like i just i i would just say them a lot in the beginning and nowadays like it's just always the butt of the joke like there's always a follow-up cousin fucking joke from somewhere like i told my mom my cousin fucking jokes and she was like you're just like, what? Well, I don't understand why this is funny. You're just like reporting facts of like, <laughs> yeah, cousins get married in our, in our culture. And then, and then that became a joke. Right. So it's just like, it's never ending. So I feel like there's always more layers to peel back on the cousin fucking. <laughs> I'm glad to know you have that depth. Yeah. <laughs> you can just keep going to that. Well, over and over again, it just gets deeper and deeper. Doc G has cousin fucking come up before on your podcast. I'm just curious as if there's some tie between getting out of debt and banging your mom's sister's daughter or son or son, whatever, <laughs> whatever gets you going. <laughs> No, so so far this is the first episode where several of these subjects have come up, which which is exactly why I wanted to do this episode with you fools. Let's talk Paul pandemic. Has the pandemic changed things? I mean, you mentioned about how, in a sense, it gave you a moment to rest on your laurels. This is a different world. Like I started watching, you know, I used to watch the night shows. And I remember when we first went to quarantine putting on like Trevor Noah or someone and saying, man, this just isn't as funny as it felt before where there was an audience I've since evolved and love them now. Yeah. But it's a different world. Yeah. It's a, it's definitely a different energy. I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on zoom shows, but I've done pro I mean, first of all, my home club here in Atlanta has been closed since March. So I did maybe, I don't know, 200 shows last year, this year I've done 20, 20 live shows, wow. maybe 20. I mean, since March. And I've done maybe like 25 Zoom shows. 
And it's nothing even close to the same kind of experience. I mean, you could pay me, I mean, the Zoom shows generally pay a lot better. Like you can make 150, 200, 500, 600 bucks some sometimes. And it's like, that wasn't even fun. You know, like it was, it's good to make a few bucks, but nobody, I mean, I'm doing comedy because it's fun to stand on stage in front of people and see what happens and talking into your like we're doing right. This is more rewarding because we're actually interacting. But when you're telling jokes into a screen and, you know, sometimes the whole audience is muted. Sometimes half the audience is muted and there's a dog barking, or you're looking at some dude across the room, lying on his couch with his four-year-old and his five-year-old. And you're like, I wonder how they like these cousin fucking jokes, you know, like, (laughs) and so, and you're like, I just, this isn't the same thing. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, same. Uh, I agree 100%. It's, I have not done a lot of Zoom shows. I tried hosting my open mic online for a while, but it just, yeah, it wasn't the, the same. There's that, there's that delay. Maybe once they figure out that delay where like you can hear the audience properly, I'm surprised no one's figured that out yet. Like this is the best we have. Yeah, I think it there is something to like phys, like the f- energy in the room. It's so important. You know, it's why like you go see a movie and it's in, more enjoyable when you're in like a movie theater with a big crowd. It's like you're all experiencing something together and there's an energy in the room. I just don't think you can create that virtually. You can't even create it live. So I did some shows at a <laughs> at this venue that seats about 1100 people and they put I don't know 333 or something in there. And it was better than nothing. It was better than Zoom, but everybody was so spread out that that concentration of energy, like like when you're sitting in a room full of 300 people packed ass cheek to ass cheek, there is a, the stakes are higher, the laughs are bigger, and that laughter comes at you like a wave. And that's the drug we're all in this for. And I mean, sure, the the cheese fries in the green room are awesome and everything, but that's <laughs> That's what you're standing on the on the corner trying to trying to score when you're doing comedy, and it's not the same without that density of human beings. Which, by the way, is a great way to spread virus. <laughs> but I was about to say what what you guys all point to is the fact that comedy is transactional, right? It is not something you do alone. It is an exchange, an exchange of ideas, maybe exchange for laughter or facial expressions or surprise. This is going to be the best segue ever. (laughs) Speaking of transactional, all three of you, Diana, not only are interested in comedy, but interested in money also. Is there a connection between money and comedy besides that you're not making any? Well, I, yeah, (laughs) I, I can think of like being at these open mics and it's just like, every other comic is joking about how they're completely broke. You know, I'd love to get up there and make a joke about my fully funded 401k, but I don't think anyone let laugh at that. <laughs> so I don't know. Is there a connection? I think maybe just like any creative endeavor, if you have the financial means where that creative endeavor has no pressure to provide your livelihood, I just think you're going to be better off. You can enjoy it for what it is, but I just don't, I don't know. I don't know if the the struggling comedian, if that's what helps them be funny that they can't pay their bills. But I think for me, I'm more creative when I don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. And so that to me is where the connection might be. 
Paula, it, it's a salient question, right? Because I'm much more likely to laugh at you if I think you're some loser struggling as opposed to an ex-Facebook exec living it up. Yeah, on the relatability scale, that's not very high. But you have to, and and but that is my reality. All right. That and 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 I have to be authentic and talk about what's real in my life and and find ways to connect with people despite my affluence. And the way I do that is talking about the way I was raised and these the the experiences I had growing up as one of six kids in a middle class family, feeling like my parents were stressed about money was the thing that drove me to be so ambitious financially. And you know, I talk about everybody can relate to frugal parents. I mean, you, you know, especially if you're over a certain age, you know, the Gen Xers certainly relate to ha- being raised by depression era parents and, and the Gen Y people think about their grand- grandparents and that's fine with me. So they relate to that and, and they relate to not being appreciated. And I, and, and like I said, the joke about, you know, my son coming home from his really rich friend's house and his chef that really happened. And, you, you know, and so it's this conundrum where you're like, well, now I've got to raise rich kids and, and I want them to be happy. I want them to be fulfilled. I want them to acknowledge what I've done for them. Nope. Doesn't happen that way. And so I don't know. I mean, I've, I've, uh, you know, I've, uh, there's this one comedian, I, I, after I got off stage one time and he was like, Oh, Paul and his rich people problems. That's so relatable. And I was like, well, it's true. And fuck off by the way. Uh, <laughs> You know, but, but that's, you know, look, it's, I'd rather a hundred percent take the risk of to say what's true and not have it work than to try to find something, some clever way to relate to the audience. That's not authentic. That is the path to failure. Well, I was really excited to have this conversation because I knew that having you guys on would make me laugh. What I didn't realize is that putting this all together, what drives someone to pursue comedy is this strange mix of passion, insecurity, and yes, even resiliency that keeps you going back and bombing over and over again so that you can create something better and more funny than the night before. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you where people can find you online, but I'm going to ask a slightly different question of you guys. It's when you are home alone and put in the ear pods, who do you listen to when it comes to comedians? Amin, let's start with you. Sure. I listen to Dave Chappelle. Usually if he's got something new, I got to hear it. It's just fantastic. And where, so where you can find me, is uh, datingcoachonwheels.com. And I also am the creator of firesinglesclub.com, where we host events for uh, people that are interested in fire and are single. Like we just had uh, two speed, speed dating events, super successful, more successful than me saying that word. And people had a blast. So yeah, come join us. Diana, where can people find you if they're interested in learning more? And when you're alone putting in the ear pods, who do you listen to when it comes to comedians? You know, what I hate about this question is that I am really bad at retaining names. So there was like a couple of comedians I saw recently and they were so good. And like, I wish I could even like have an inkling to like search real fast and pull up their name. The only one I could think of is I... 
I used to get really annoyed when people would care, compare me to Sarah Silverman because I hated her for a very long time. Hated her. And then she did it like her last special that I saw was actually really good. So I, I feel like I like came around on that. So I guess I have to say her. And then how people can find me is the economy conference and economy is spelled with an M E at the end, not an M Y because I'm so clever. Uh, so www.economyconference.com and tickets for the November event are actually going on sale March 7th. So hopefully this was released in that window and everyone can take advantage of that. And if you're yeah. looking for her, her name is Diana Miriam, but because she's so clever, it's spelled D-I-A-N-I-A. So just keep that in mind if you're looking for her online. I'll answer that question myself before I get to Paul. I have to say, growing up, Eddie Murphy just about killed me. I remember, I can't even remember the name of the tour. He was wearing like the red leather pants and doing the joke about his mom throwing shoes like when he made mistakes and he dropped his ice cream and his mom threw the shoe at him. I I, I died. And then I would agree with, I mean, I mean that Dave Chappelle, I think is just an artist from, from my non-professional viewpoint of just someone who I've listened to on and off. That guy amazes me. So Paul, round us up. I think it was either raw or delirious. The tours you were referring to. Maybe it was delirious. Yeah. And by the way, he would totally be canceled today if any of that material got out. But I agree with you. Eddie Murphy was inspiring. I wish somebody would compare me to Sarah Silverman. Dave Chappelle <laughs> is a genius. I love Norm Macdonald. I think Gary Goldman is one of the smartest people on the planet. But for some, for some people that you might not have heard of, two of my favorite comics are guys named Rory Scovel and Joe List. They are uh, just below the level of some of the guys and women we just talked about, women we just talked about, but they're they're brilliant, brilliant guys. Great, Joe, Joe List is a great joke writer. Rory Scoville is one of the funniest, like, imp- he's not, he's somewhat improvisational. Anyway, he's genius. Okay, those are some comedians I love. My, you can find me by searching Crazy Money Podcast. We're going to paulollinger.com. That's O-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Paul Ollinger, Diana Miriam, and Amin Lakani. That's a wrap. Hey, everybody. I hope you got a good laugh with our conversation about comedy with Diana, Amin, and Paul. Here at Earn and Invest, we talk about how you can get ahead, how you can earn and invest for your future. But you know what we don't spend a huge amount of time talking about? Real estate. That's why I want to send you over to my friend, Coach Carson. He is the host of the Real Estate and Financial Independence podcast with Coach Carson. Over there, they talk about all things real estate. He has really two main types of episodes. One is where he, as the expert, is giving you some of the tips and tricks to how to get ahead in the real estate game. The other is where he has guests on real life examples of how people are getting to financial independence through real estate. It is an amazing podcast. I suggest you check them out wherever you listen to this fine podcast, or you can go over to coachcarson.com to hear more. And now we come to our community segment, Are You an Earner or Investor? I want to point you to our Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash group slash earn and invest. Over there, we talk about some similar subjects to what you hear on Monday and Thursday's episodes on the podcast. But this is a place for you 
the community. We have a bunch of great community members, and I want to highlight one today. Rob Wolf wrote on our Earn and Invest Facebook page a little information about his father. His post goes something like this. In honor of National Physicians Week, a pick of my dad, may he rest in peace, scrubbing for surgery in the early 1960s. He loved to operate and really loved delivering babies. Never met any doctor who loved medicine as much as he did. I am so proud of him. He worked at St. Joe's East and West in Mount Clemens, Michigan for many years. He is a four-time escape artist. He is the main character in my upcoming book, The Hungarian Pepion. The Holocaust Through the Eyes of an Escape Artist, hopefully out within the next year. He survived the Nazis and communists, including two wars, before emigrating to the U.S. in 1956 on Christmas Eve. There is no time more relevant than the present for the message in the book to be shared. This is my investment since my parents invested in me. By the way, he always used to say about medicine, don't do it for the money. Well, thank you, Rob, for that little note about your father. It really makes me think about my father like your father, my father was a physician. He died when he was 40 of a brain aneurysm, but the years he spent practicing, I really think were some of the greatest of his life. He loved being a physician like your father. I sometimes go back and look at his notebooks and I see all the graphs and all the notes he took so lovingly, and I realize he was doing exactly what he needed to do. And I also echo your sentiment about this idea of how our parents invested in us. Even though my father was only on this earth for the first eight years of my life, he really put everything he could into me, and his life insurance supported me through college and medical school. And I think the same thing about my mother. You know, as parents, we invest in our children, and then we as children learn to invest in our own lives— financially, emotionally, and then invest in our children too. Wealth is generational, and I'm not just talking about financial wealth, but happiness, connection, all those things are passed on from generation to generation. I think it's wonderful to celebrate our parents. They are the original investors in our lives so that we could become earners and investors ourselves. So I look forward to your book. Hopefully when it comes out, you can come on the Earn and Invest podcast and talk about it and talk about the wonderful legacy of your father. I would love to have you on. Thank you for posting on the Facebook group. That is facebook.com slash group slash earn and invest. We love to see you there. Become part of our community and have a great week. Take care. Try that again. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? And now. Hey, man, how are you? I'm cold. How are you? Oh, my God, am I cold. I'm in Chicago, and I swear to God, we um, we have so much snow, I just don't know what to do with it. <laughs> That's something for someone from Chicago to say. Well, we always talk about 1979. So 19, the blizzard of 79 in Chicago, I was uh, what, six years old, and the snow was above my head. And I think today hello. we are in line. Hey, hey, what's up, Diana? Good. How are you? Good. How are you? What's going on? Oh, you know, just living the dream as an unemployed person. I know. Wow. That's crazy. How are you feeling about that? So good. Yeah. I I didn't know that I would feel this good. I thought I'd be like a little bit scared. Not at all. No. That's great. Yeah. It's pretty impressive. 
I'm kind of sort of unemployed, but not really. <laughs> I still work about 12 to 15 hours a week, at least in something that you kind of call employment. I'm a consultant, but otherwise. Well, do you, you want to be doing it? Yeah, I do. Or I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother. You guys know each other though, right? We do. Yes, we do. We spoke earlier today. Uh, you're like, what's this dot G guy going to want to talk about? For God's sake, another <laughs> one of his crazy panels. No, I'm just like so surprised that you invited me on this. Like, is this a roast? I'm not a comedian. Well, actually, <laughs> why no. am I here? So admittedly, I wanted to invite people who who come to comedy from different levels and different experiences, et cetera. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and people because so I don't think we're going to talk a huge amount about personal finance in this. I really would like to just talk about comedy and what it means and how we use it, et cetera, um, and how you get into it and what it feels like, those type of things. But we're all personal finance people. So it's kind of cool to have people that the audience knows, but talking yeah. about something that maybe they don't always hear you talking about. Cool. So I, I'd rather be on a comedy podcast talking <laughs> about personal finance. Yeah. That's, that'll probably be more fun, but I'm also, you know, one thing, and I think Paul, I mean, both of you guys understand this. It's like, Sometimes you have to just kind of go non-personal finance in your personal finance podcast, right? You've got to talk yeah. about kind of deeper, different things and not just talk about money. And so I like to do these episodes, which I think are adjacent and um, aren't just hardcore money. Because, I mean, at some point, I really, I think most podcasts kind of broaden out or you end up talking about the same thing all the time, which is great for your new listeners, but eventually yeah. it's tiring for everyone else. That was a lot of fun. Wow, perfect timing too. Three fifty nine. You guys really? created, took something that probably, I'm sure, when you were coming into this, we're like, "Oh, this is going to be really boring," and made it really interesting and funny. So, thank you. I hope your FI audience likes it. Yeah, well, I, I'm. I'm not actually. So here's the. You know, this is. I think for some of you too. It's like, I, I really, really, really want them to like it, mm. but it's still my prime thing is to create good, interesting conversation. That's exactly the right comedic attitude. You don't pander to your audience. You, sh- you show them Fuck what they them, should man. want. You know, <laughs> no, you're doing them a service by showing them what they should want. It's like Steve Jobs, right? He's like, don't ask people. They don't know what they want. Show yeah, them right. what they want. Right. 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 Do you guys have any questions, complaints, problems, issues? Danny, you were on mute the whole show. Oh, no? Was I? No, no, no. I'm good. I'm good. good. I'm still here. All right. This will probably come out in four to six weeks, probably more close to six. I will send you a copy of it before it comes out so you can take a listen. I'll edit it up and we'll go from there. But thank you guys again for having a fun conversation. A good conversation. Even more than fun. You mean you'll make your son edit it up? Yes. Well, I. (laughs) so my son does. I can't believe this. My son can edit a 60-minute podcast in 40 minutes. I don't know how he does it. He puts it like on triple speed now and uses Descript. So Descript gives it in paragraph form. Uh, And I don't know what kind of tools he uses, but he does a better job than any editor I've ever had. But I still have to do the final edit. So I still have to listen to it, get rid of all the... uh, He gets rid of 90% of the ums and ahs, but a lot of the sometimes like sentences that don't need to be there, stuff like that, I get rid of. Like, we'll probably get rid of all the cousin fucking... No, I'm kidding. (laughs) That was the best part, actually. It'd be fun to to replace that, like come up with something like apple (laughs) apple picking and like some some really dub it over. Just dub (laughs) it over so that it's clearly dubbed over. That would be hilarious. No, this one will get the explicit rating. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna use I'm gonna clip that out what you just did there, Paul. And I'm just gonna (laughs) apple picking.
You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.